And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We're going to be uh, starting out today's morning show by talking about one of the great classics, A Christmas Carol of Charles Dickens. And it's a stage adaption as is going to be presented uh, soon by the uh, Fleeing Artists Theater uh, Company of of Kenosha, who have done all kinds of uh, intriguing things under the direction uh, of uh, co-founder Alex Matowski. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a very special adaption of A Christmas Carol and the performances that are going to be happening this weekend at the Rhodey um, uh, Center for the Arts in downtown Kenosha. Alex is on hand with us, but uh, in this production he is an actor portraying Bob Cratchit, among other characters. And also with us today are the uh, director and co-director, who also happen to be husband and wife. Uh, Rick Bingen is director of this production. Uh, Kayla Bingen, uh, who I know as a, a graduate from Carthage, is the assistant director for this production. And we welcome all three of you to The Morning Show. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having Thanks. us. Uh, Alex, the last time we talked, uh, we were talking about a fleeing artist theater production that uh, happened on a boat yes. out on Lake Michigan. <laughs> and just remind our listeners briefly what that was about. Sure. It was an adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Tempest, uh, performed part of our as part of our summer Shakespeare program. Uh, we collaborated with the Red Witch, uh, one of the ships that is part of the Tall Ships uh, Company, and we were able to put on the show with five actors uh, in a 70-minute production playing all of the parts. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Well, that kind of brings to mind what this production is going <laughs> to be all about, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll stick with you for a moment, and then we'll turn to the Bingens to hear more about mm -hmm. how this is going to work. But uh, we are talking about uh, a production of A Christmas Carol that uh, features a, a plethora of, of roles and characters oh, yeah played by a very small group of actors. Right. So uh, you were saying before we went on the air that uh, your inspiration for this concept comes from uh, a, a very famous production that I want you to tell us about. Sure. Oh, well, uh, two productions, actually. Uh, one more recent that uh, viewers, I think, are more familiar with, that would be Peter and the Starcatcher, the Tony Award-winning Broadway play that's wonderful, about 11, 12 actors playing 40 characters in a famous prequel to the Peter Pan story. And then also inspired by the Royal Shakespeare Company's production of their adaptation of another Dickens novel, Nicholas Nickleby. And that famous production is nine hours long with 50 odd actors playing over 200 roles. Wow. <laughs> we, we, uh, we're not going that big. Uh, we do not have the budget for that scope of a production yet. Right. So what are we talking mathematically about with this production? Mathematically, it boils down to eight actors playing about, f I think it's 45 parts. We just say over 40, around 50 parts. Uh, that's one actor playing Scrooge and seven actors playing everybody else. Wow. So, for instance, you acting mm -hmm. in this production are going to be portraying uh, who? Yes, see. Right now I am Bob Cratchit. I'm also Mr. Fezziwig, the old boss of Scrooge who throws all the parties. And I'm old Joe, one of the thieves who... Uh, Spoiler alert for a 200-year-old uh, story. Uh, <laughs> it, when Scrooge passes and is shown a vision of his future, he is one of the peddlers of Scrooge's merchandise, a.k.a. Uh, the items lifted from his home. <laughs> ah, there you go. So are you responsible for making all of the specific choices about actor A will portray these roles and actor B will portray these roles? 
uh, when I uh, I adapted the story uh, and I gave an indication in the script of what I recommended just based on the logistics of eight actors playing 50 parts, uh, but really it was uh, Rick and uh, Kayla who decided uh, which parts should be divvied up to whom. <laughs> well, let's talk about just what a challenge that is. I mean, it's a challenge enough to... Uh effectively cast any sort of normal production in which you have an actor <laughs> with a role, but something like this involves, I should think, uh, you know, kind of a logistical nightmare. T tell us about it. <laughs> well, there is a lot of work put into it. Uh, luckily, in the script, they, the different characters were numbered, so you could kind of <laughs> try and follow along with, this is actor five, this is actor six, but you still had to, like when we were going through auditions, think that uh, actor three is going to be Marley, uh, Christmas present, and then Tiny Child at the end of the play, and who do we <laughs> cast for such a thing? Right. Uh, so uh, the logistics of auditions, and then uh, when we were thinking about what is going to be the rehearsal schedule, uh, it ended up basically being everybody's called everybody, every night because there's really no small role in uh, the way that this is adapted. You're almost always on stage. There's a few moments where you get to take a little bit of a break, um, but otherwise you're pretty much on stage the entire time. Wow, I should I should think. Kayla, you were telling us before we uh, went on the air that you and Rick have actually done some co-directing before, and you've even done Christmas Carol before. We have. Um, yeah, we, we've kind of gotten our stride over the years and our, our system of directing together. We definitely both uh, bring our different strengths to the table. I bring in more the, the musical side, so I can provide that additional music and sound design. Um, Rick has a very technical background, so has a lot of insight into set design and lighting design. Um, and then as far as directing the actors, like, you know, we, we really bounce back and forth pretty nicely. And, yeah, we have done Christmas Carol before, but definitely never a version quite like this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So what about the rehearsal process? What has that been like to work with actors who have to be constantly shifting between different characters? How has this felt different for you as directors versus uh, the directing you've done of more standard productions? Yeah, we started out uh, at the very beginning. Uh, Kayla actually had a sheet of different uh, ways that you could uh, pick up different character traits and per play all of your characters differently so that they uh, are all different. And we gave them uh, that sheet of paper at our read-through and then kind of let them go from there and kind of decide what they were going to do for each of their characters. And uh, really we've only, from a character standpoint, we've only needed to give minor notes as we go through the process. Uh, and they've done a really great job of making each of their characters diverse and mm -hmm. uh, we encourage them to make really strong choices um, but also pointing out that small vocal changes can make a big difference in, mm -hmm. in differentiating between characters there's not a lot of complex costuming happening because of the short transitions between their characters so Fred wears a hat in one scene and then when he's somebody else he doesn't wear a hat but um, those those small vocal changes make a big difference for the audience's interpretation of the characters they're seeing on stage. Right, and so I should think for you as directors, it it you you have to in a sense scale your expectations in kind of different directions, and what what matters most are kind of different from from some other kind of production where you're maybe digging very deep into a single character and 
going for all kinds of tiny little details. This isn't really about that then. Right. It's more just the changes in their voice. And it's Christmas Carol, so everybody also narrates at some point. So then making sure that when you're narrating that the audience knows that you're narrating and Mm. not saying the line as your actual character is important as well. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, Alex, what is it like for you as as an actor? I know you've been in this situation before, but Mm. the shifting from character to character, what is... What does that feel like for you as a thespian? It was tremendously helpful to have that sheet that uh, Kayla gave us at the beginning. The idea that uh, each character had a a hook or a specific character trait that you can latch onto to essentially step into character. So whether it's a vocal change or a shift in physicality, uh, latching onto that so that really Dickens' words shine through and the characters he wrote so beautifully uh, get their due. Is there anything else you have done with this adaption or arrangement of of A Christmas Carol that we should know about in terms of any changes you have made? Well, uh, as Rick mentioned, uh, this production utilizes narrators. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful storytelling device uh, for works based on novels because it allows the actors to relate the words of the writer of Charles Dickens that usually don't get spoken. One of the most famous lines in literature, Marley was dead, which starts off the whole shebang, almost never gets spoken in the in the plays or in the films because there's no way to do it. Uh, Having these narrators allows us to do that. Hmm. So it enriches the story exactly. in, 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 in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So Kayla and Rick, tell us about where you are in the rehearsal process with uh, opening night coming up on Friday, the 20th. So, yeah. so for instance, what was happening last night? Well, uh, it is Tech Week, and uh, we have been battling some illnesses from cast members. So we were actually shorthanded last night. If you can believe it, we're already... In theory, shorthanded with yes. a cast of eight people for 50 roles. Um, but we managed to be even more shorthanded last night. But, you know, I really think that the process we've set up in rehearsal about supporting each other and understanding that everyone has to cover everything in every situation, last night's rehearsal was one of the best that we've honestly had so far, even, wow. even though we were missing people. So that just goes to show how in tune they are with each other and mm. how they know exactly what's going on. They're not just responsible for themselves. They are aware of what needs to be moved where and, and oh, that got dropped. I can take care of it. Um, that shows you that by the time we're all back together and healthy that we're going to have a thoroughly fluid production. Wow. Yeah. And as of Sunday night, we've got the lights mm-hmm. uh, ready. So as soon as the lights are as they're going to be during the production, it immediately starts making the whole production feel a lot more real. Mm-hmm. And so this week we have our lights, we have the costumes, we got the makeup going on, and so it's all coming together for uh, this Friday opening night, and we're very excited. You mentioned the fact that costumes are, are relatively simple. I mean, they need to be if you're going to be doing all of these rapid changes. What about the set? I mean, are we talking about something that puts us in the time of Dickens, or, or is it a little more uh, abstract? Uh, it's a little more abstract. Uh, when I got the script, it was like, this is about storytelling. We have all these narrators. We have all these different characters playing all these different roles. And so I took that as, well, then the costume pieces and the props that we're going to use should be on stage from the very get-go. They're there mm. at the beginning. And 
since somebody has to say a line and then immediately switch to maybe like a nun, their costume should be on stage <laughs> so they can quickly grab their piece and put it on so that we know that they've changed. Uh, so we have um, a desk and then we have some blocks that represent some of the other pieces and we'll move those around and create tables and stuff like that. But otherwise, it's an abstract set with costume pieces and props being grabbed off the walls to be used and then hung back up as they are done. And so it's a, a little bit different than your traditional yeah. performance. Yeah. It's a mix between a set and a dressing room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, well put. And I suppose that underscores what you were talking about, Alex, in terms of the concept itself being, in, in a sense, at its heart, uh, just telling this story the way a storyteller would do in, in relatively simple fashion. Not that this is simple fashion for mm. you who are executing it, but I mean, in a sense, what we will experience is something, uh, in a sense, simple in the best sense of the word. Sure. It harkens back to uh, what humanity has been doing for thousands of years, just telling stories around a campfire. It's about the stories, it's about the characters, and this... Uh, Christmas Carol, everybody knows it, not just for its quote-unquote commercial value and commercialization of Christmas <laughs> and the holidays, uh, but because it is the story of Scrooge, uh, who in the beginning represents the worst of humanity by plays and becoming the best of humanity, caring, giving, uh, charitable. And it's something that we all aspire to be. I think that's why the story resonates with so many people, and that's why uh, a more storyteller approach will help emphasize that. Mm. So performances of A Christmas Carol will be this weekend, Friday night, Saturday night, 7.30, and uh, it looks like Saturday and Sunday afternoon mm -hmm. matinees at 2 o'clock at the Rhodey Center for the Arts, of course, which is 514 uh, 56th Street, right in downtown Kenosha. Tickets oh, yeah. available at the door, and it looks like more information available at www.fleeingartists.org. Yep, and we're also on Facebook uh, and Instagram and probably other things, too. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that savvy. Very good. Uh, Alex Matowski uh, is the, responsible for this adaption of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol and uh, playing uh, a number of roles, including that of Bob Cratchit, and Rick and Kayla Bingen, the director and co-director of this uh, production of A Christmas Carol. My thanks to all of you in the midst of a busy, busy week uh, for uh, joining me today on The Morning Show. And uh, best wishes with these performances this weekend. Thank, Thank you so you very much. much. For Happy us. holidays. You too. And uh, here is part two of today's morning show here on WGTD. For the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about a book that is going to speak, I think, very directly to the hearts of many people listening. That is for adult children who find themselves in the position of being a caregiver for their own parents. That might be your story or the story of somebody you know, and uh, it might be your story and on one end of the transaction or the other. That is, you might be the, the adult child uh, giving the care. You might be the aging parent receiving the care. But uh, even if this is not part of your own story at the moment, it very likely might be down the future. And uh, even for somebody for whom this is not their own reality, it is still a very compelling thing to think about. Uh, the book at hand is called I'll Be Right There, 
a guidebook for adults caring for their aging parents. And it is uh, the work of someone who is very much experiencing this reality for herself. Her name is Fern Pesson. And back in 2016, uh, she essentially took up stakes from where she was living and working in the Northeast and moved to Boca Raton, Florida, uh, to be close to her mother and her father, uh, to whom she still gives care to this very, very day. And she has taken many of her own personal experiences as well as relentless research that she has done on the topic and put together this this book that is really a workbook uh, as much as anything designed to help others who find themselves uh, in this position. And the statistics show us that uh, tens of millions of adult children are caring for their own parents. And this book uh, may very well be a very uh, helpful resource indeed. It is from Publish Your Purpose Press, again titled I'll Be There, I'll Be Right There, a guidebook for adults caring for their aging parents. Fern Pesson, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So uh, describe, first of all, your personal and professional life before 2016 when uh, you found yourself compelled for various reasons to, uh, to move yourself to Boca Raton, Florida, and to be close to your parents. Describe, first of all, your life before that. Okay. I was a nonprofit fundraiser, so my life was filled with running events and programs for animal shelters, for cancer care. Um, I worked with a lot of variety of charities to run events raising millions of dollars. So very, very busy. (laughs) Um, I love what I did. I was also a part-time pet sitter because I love animals and um, a part-time writer because I have a passion for writing. And my father um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was getting worse. And my mother is a cancer survivor. We realized as a family, sorry, that going back and forth to Florida as snowbirds was probably not going to happen. And I moved to Florida to make sure that they had support because otherwise they wouldn't have done it. And so that's my story. Do Do I remember correctly that you have siblings? I do. I have a brother and a sister that live, both of them live in Dix Hills, New York, uh, about a mile from each other. Hmm. I wonder if you could just take us inside kind of that conversation which took place, because I know that that can sometimes be one of the most complicated matters. Uh, that is, when we're talking about multiple siblings and this pressing need uh, f- for a parent or both parents to uh, receive sort of closer attention uh, that uh, you have various siblings, any one of which might or might not be in varying degrees able to, to step up uh, for, for such a responsibility. Uh, if it's not too personal a question, I just wonder how you and your siblings kind of handled this moment, in a sense, amongst yourselves, and what your advice would be for other siblings who have to take up this complicated question. Yes, this is a huge a huge issue. Um, in, in most families, there's one person that it just sort of falls on that become the designated primary caregiver. And in our family, when 
when we looked at the wellness of my parents, the cold weather, the the fact that my mother was having difficulty walking, and we thought, you know, with snow and ice and whatever, it wasn't really going to go well. And the fact that my father started to not know where he was when he was driving meant that if they were living alone and still driving and in bad weather, perhaps, it, it wasn't going to work. So my sister has um, a husband and children. Um, she has a business that really is focused in New York. My brother is the CEO of a company he owns in New York. He has a wife and stepchildren. So it, I'm single, and I have the kind of career that is project-oriented. So we figured, okay, uh, this this makes most the most sense, and it's not always optimal. And so I looked at it. I tried to look at it with a positive. You know, I don't have to deal with winter anymore. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I'll go to Florida. And I thought that I would still be able to to work in Florida, but be close to my parents and provide the support because they're, they were still very independent, and they still are somewhat independent. But when I got down here. My father um, had crashed his car into somebody on the way down, totaled the car, arrived here and said, I'm not driving again. Mm. And my mother, with um, her perceptions and her ability to concentrate, was greatly diminishing. So I became their primary driver. And my sister and brother have always been very supportive. Whatever you need, Fern. So we worked it out, and, and this is what I recommend for other people. People can do what they can do, so take advantage of that. My brother's an IT tech kind of guy, and he handles all of that for my parents. So when we needed to install a camera in the living room to make sure that we could see if my dad fell, my brother handled all of that. If there's research to be done, if there are you know, what I call toys, to make life easier, he he does that from wherever he is. Um, my sister is wonderful at doing research, and she can help by, like when we needed hospital beds for my parents so that the beds could be lifted by electronics, she did all that research and arranged for the delivery. And, and so it's not that they're not helping, they're just not here every day. They're not driving my parents to doctor's appointments or all of that. And we agreed that I would keep up with them with communication because if, you know, God forbid something happened to me, what happens to my parents? So pretty much in the beginning, it was several times a week. Then it became once a week. Now it's as needed. I write a report by email to my siblings and let them know everything going on with the apartment, with my parents, with me, what my schedule is. And they come down um, as often as they can to give me respite, to mm -hmm. let me take a weekend off or a week off or something like that. So they, they're working out the schedule so that every other month somebody's here to let me go do my thing, to let me um, share <laughs> share me with the world, if you will, without my parents around. You are so fortunate, and I think you know you convey this pretty well in your book that there are plenty of people who do not find themselves in this situation. I mean, not that most I don't think anyone would envy the situation that you find yourself in, but uh, if someone does find themselves in such a situation. Uh, it is ever so much better when there are 
siblings who are f- fully supportive and appreciative, uh, yeah. and, and that makes all the difference. And I love this idea of the report. I mean, somebody kind of at, at a glance might think, what are you talking about? Why, why, why would you write up a report? And yet it makes all of the sense <laughs> in the world, not only for conveying important information, but also just for the sake of then you are, in a sense, not bearing this reality uh, alone. I mean, in a sense, just by sharing this information on a very regular basis, uh, you are, in a sense, not experiencing this gauntlet by yourself on your own. Exactly. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had uh, with my sister and my brother where I just cried I was because they know my parents and they know this isn't the dad that we knew. This isn't the mom that we knew. This is getting worse. It's going to keep getting worse. And they are good siblings, in that they are doing exactly what you said. They keep telling me how much they appreciate me and they know that this is hard and let them know if there's anything they can do. Not everybody has that. But I think the scariest thing for me is now that I'm down here with my parents and my parents depend on me, what happens if something happens to me? I had a friend who was in her 40s and she had a stroke. And she couldn't. She didn't know her husband. She didn't know herself. She she lost her business because she wasn't prepared, and she didn't let everybody know how to help her the best the way they could. So I'm making sure my siblings know. I know this sounds terrible, probably, <laughs> but I'm making sure my siblings know everything going on. So if something happened to me, they could pick up the gauntlet. They can take it and run with it and and not feel like they were left in the dark. And I think that's the problem. A lot of long-distance siblings feel like they're left out, and then it makes it harder to support the person who is the primary if they feel like they have no stake in it because nobody's telling them what's going on. Mm. It's hard. It's hard to want to help and not know how to help. Absolutely. And to make that difference uh, and and to make it more possible uh, is 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 so important for those of you just joining us i'm speaking with fern pesson and we are talking about a a book that she has written called a guidebook for adults caring for their aging parents fern pesson in 2016 transplanted herself uh, from the uh, from the northeast down to boca raton florida to be close to her mother and father and so she could uh, give them the care that they needed. Uh, one of the things that is a bit complicated about your situation is that it is both of your parents requiring uh, special care. Your mom as a cancer survivor, your dad contending with, with Alzheimer's. Talk for a moment about what this has been like, about both of your parents uh, having significant needs and also at least to some extent, needs that are different from the other? Yes. My mother had cancer in her spine, so she has neuropathy in in her foot, and it makes sometimes her foot drags, so she has some mobility issues. My father is lightheaded. He's, I'm not dizzy. I don't have vertigo, but he's lightheaded, a little off sometimes, and he's prone now to falling. So my mother 
holds my father up. My father holds my mother up. The two of them walking are, are a sight to see, but they're there to support each other literally and figuratively. And for right now, as long as they have each other, they can still be independent living together. But the family all together made a decision, and my father agreed that it was time to move to a place where there was support available to them. So that has helped me and my siblings a great deal in that we could do that. And my parents now have an entire team of people running programs and events. So my mother, who's social, has something to do during the day while my father prefers to be more to his own company. And that that has helped us. But my mother has what's called pseudo-dementia, which is she's signs of all the dementia, but it's because of stress of taking care of my dad. So conversations can get very kind of funky. We have repeat conversations, deadlines, schedules, doctor visits, what they said, medication management. All of this has become issues that we deal with on a daily basis. So it can be overwhelming. Hmm to try to manage two other people's lives and health. I remember you saying in the book that you entered this fray, shall we call it, um, with essentially no expertise. That is, uh, you did not come into this having already been a licensed practice nurse or uh, or or a therapist or um, any any of the various careers that in a sense might lead very naturally into doing this kind of work, giving this kind of care to your parents. So uh, in a sense, you have had to become an expert uh, even as you have been experiencing all of these challenges. What has that been like and what has been most valuable to you in terms of learning all that you needed to learn in order to do this uh, to the very, very best of your ability? Well, that is so true. I got down here and thought I would have plenty of time to kind of acclimate myself and just be around for my parents. But I I couldn't start working or do anything like that on my own because I was taking care of them, driving them, taking them to doctors, lawyers, all of those things to get the estate settled and um, or set up, however you want to call it. And um, it was it was really challenging. So immediately, I got into a caregiver support group for children caring for their adults. And I met all these wonderful people going through the same thing I was going through. I found myself um, a therapist who had experience in working with caregivers. So I could turn to somebody because I was here alone. And you can, it's really isolating. A lot of caregivers find themselves. That feeling very disconnected with the outside world because it becomes your your focus. This is all you do. So I did that for a while, learned a ton from doing that, and then read a bunch of articles, went online. There are caregiver support 
um, websites on there. Um, I put a bunch of them in my book because I think that it helps to have articles and information, started collecting that, then realized that if at some point we needed to have a home health aide or a nurse in the house, I didn't know what I could expect from that. So I went and not everybody does this. This might be a little crazy, but I went and took a class at a nursing school to become a home health aide. Not that I wanted that as a career, but I wanted to know what I needed to know to be able to take care of my parents. I wanted to meet other aides, know what I could expect from them. And secretly, I wanted to see if I could find somebody who my dad might be okay with because he doesn't want anyone in the house. He's a man. He doesn't need anyone in the house. And my mother couldn't leave the house unless I was here to be with my dad. So I found a guy there who was a handyman, and we hired him. So I knew he had all the, the, the you know, CPR and all of that kind of stuff. But he came in, and he was, he was fixing things around the house. Every time my mother had to go out, Dennis was here. <laughs> so my father was okay with that. He was okay with having a fix-it guy, but he wasn't okay with having an aide. So that it helped with that. What would you say were the most valuable tools or the, the most significant information that you gained from that study as a home health aide? I mean, to receive that certification. I think that's one of the most intriguing things that, that you uh, offer up in, in the book uh, when it comes to like nuts and bolts, tangible things, what would be one or two of the things that you were especially grateful for learning in the course of that? Well, in in that class, you learn you learn everything about keeping you know aesthetics, keeping the clean clean, and all the wound care stuff. You learn about medication management. You learn about. Um, how to move somebody that might have fallen or um, is having difficulty to support somebody. So when you're dealing with somebody who may or may not be able to get in and out of a shower or in and out of a bathroom, on and off a couch, those kinds of things, it's really helpful to learn how to not hurt yourself and be able to support somebody. There's other things that I learned in the process, like keeping a note by the door frame where people go, when EMS would come in and take your parents or, or you, whatever, out, you can have a note with an envelope by the door that says your blood type, which hospital you want to go to, your medical history, and any any things that they need to know in order to give your parents the best care possible, you know, insurance information, that kind of thing, the primary care doctor, emergency contact, all of that. So if you put that by the door, then when EMS comes, they just grab that and they have everything they need. Or put a phone on the floor if your parents are prone to falling because they might not remember how to use that great smartphone you gave them that's in their pocket, but they can crawl to a landline phone, and that they will remember. Hmm. So it's that kind of little things that I learned over time. Hmm. One of the choices you made with this book is to create it as kind of a manual, kind of a workbook. It even has worksheets in it. And it will probably remind some people of 
certain books that are created for new mothers, that kind of thing. Um, how did it occur to you that it, that it would make sense to put together a book like this in, in this sort of format? Okay, so I went for, my sister came up and I went away for a week to re- recover, you know, after a certain amount of time, you just need, you need to completely separate. So I went on a, on a healthy, like meditation, kind of eat healthy sort of a thing. And when I was there and talking to other people who were there, they kept saying, Fern, how did you even know to do this? Give me the list. I need the list. And I said, I don't have a list. They said, well, you got to make a list. So I started making a list of all the things that I had learned and all the things that I had done 352 pages later. (laughs) It's a long list. And I wrote it in a way because other people don't have time to do all the things that I did. I recognize that a lot of caregivers are, are working full time while they're also taking care of their parents and supporting their parents. And if you, if you, go through the book and you and you can first look at the assessment section and figure out where your parents are then you know how much of the rest of it so it's a big book but it's you don't need to do all of it you just have to figure out where your parents are and go from there and the little things that you can do to keep your parents in their house longer and safer those kinds of things are in there. So once you fill out the assessment, then you know next steps. Then you look for all your contacts so that you're not running around last minute. And that's what makes you stressed, all the not knowing how to do something. And that's why you say, I'll be right there all the time. Your mother calls you and <laughs> says, the, 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 the sink is exploding. What do I do? And you're, I'll be right there, you know. Um, your father fell and he's got a cut. I'll be right there. But if you have the resources to call and say, oh, I already know the plumber. I'll just call him and have him come over and, and then I'll be there. Um, those kinds of things that people don't think about. Or I'm, I live in Florida now and there's hurricanes. So do we know where the shelter is? Do we know where to go and get supplies? Are those things taken care of? So it's kind of... It's kind of like a, a schedule of what you need to know and when, and if you figure it all out before you actually need to know it, that's going to reduce a huge amount of stress. Plus, you can delegate. Mm. If you go through the book and you say, oh, I can give this to my sister who's out of town. I can give this to a friend, a family friend. I can give this to the, you know, and, and, and that takes some of the burden off you. So that's why I decided to do it this way. So mm. people can reduce their, their stress by being prepared. Well, and it's a very good example of when somebody is facing something that is quite overwhelming, uh, it is very easy to just kind of get lost in the slog of that. And uh, what you are suggesting is that if somebody can (laughs) find the wherewithal to, in a sense, step away from it just long enough to do a bit of planning, that can make all the difference in the world. I mean, it is worth the time to do it because of all of the time and stress and maybe even heartache that you will be saving yourself from uh, in, 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 the, in the time that, that, that comes after. Uh, but one has to take the time to do this. Right. For example, if, you're, if your parent had a fall, 
wound up in the hospital and they're under, you know, looking for some, a fracture, this, that, or the other thing. And then they have to go to rehab. The hospital calls you and says, your parent is being discharged in five hours. Where do you want us to send them? <laughs> so you imagine how stressful that is when you've got your life going on and all of a sudden you have to figure out which rehab to send your parents to, which one's covered by their insurance, which one is where their doctor is accepted. And you start making calls frantically because you've got five hours to go get your parent moved or or that you get your somebody's coming home and needs a hospital bed because they're immobilized or a wheelchair. Do you know where to get it? Do you have a rental company that you've already scanned out and made sure the insurance is accepted and all of that? If you do that in advance, okay, thanks. I'll just call so-and-so and it's done. Hmm. You see, doesn't that make sense? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I want to make sure before we finish that we have a chance to Talk about something that is beyond the the nuts and bolts, and that is the fact that uh, there is a very complicated emotional component to what we are talking about when there is this uh, drastic uh, reversal of roles when a child is suddenly caring for their own parent. And matters of dignity and respect uh, become uh, far more complicated than they probably ever were before. Uh, what have you experienced yourself when it comes to this matter? And what is your advice for people who find themselves uh, in, in this position in terms of preserving at least as much as possible the, the dignity of, of their parents as they find themselves in this really hard situation? Yeah, I I did a lot of hearing things like, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your mother. You have to listen to me. I raised you. Those kinds of things. Because when you come at people with, you have to move or you need to stop driving. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> that, that gets, uh, you know, what do they call it? The hackles raised. You know, people get very agitated about that. So there's conversation starters you can have that make it a lot softer and a lot more respectful. It's still your parents. So there's, there's that kind of a thing where, um, you want to maybe suggest that we try a driving test. I've, I've noticed some unusual things in your driving. Would you be willing to go through a, an, um, an evaluation? Um, okay, fine. Or if you have a neighbor or a friend that has gone through a situation, like I had a friend who spent $13,000 on a funeral for his father and when he was cleaning out the house a few weeks later, he found a prepaid cremation. So now he's going to spend five years paying for a funeral that his father didn't even want. So he's got all this guilt about not doing what his father really wanted, but and then a financial burden. Nobody wants that for their kids, and nobody wants that for their parents. So communicating on what are your wishes. I also recommend doing something this fivewishes.org has a document that has these conversation starters. So I'll tell you what I want and you tell me what you want. And that way, when we get to that place, it's what you've told me you want. 
and I'm giving you exactly what you've asked for. So it's respecting what the other person wants. Mm. But there's also there's also a guilt that comes with being a child, taking care of parents, because you get that feeling of, I don't want to do this anymore. How did I get myself into this? I hate doing this. And then my mother told me, she says, well, I think you're just trying to get rid of me so you can marry your father. <laughs> whoa, whoa, that is an unusual thing to say, Ma. No <laughs> and kidding. that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. So it's things start coming out, and it's it it can be very very overwhelming. Which is why having a caregiver support group or siblings you can talk to or a best friend can really really be it's it's really critical to have that support network set up because your parents are your parents and you don't want to be their parent. You're supposed to know everything. You're supposed to tell me what to do. And here you are flipping the roles around. It's really hard. Right. And I should think that when you know that you are fulfilling your parents' wishes or what at least were their wishes, uh, that that in a sense instills a, a level of confidence that uh, as you're doing something that's hard enough as it is, but would be still harder if, if you're not certain if whether or not you are at odds with their wishes. But when you know that this is what they want or what they wanted, these are their stated wishes, uh, I should think that really makes an emotional difference for the better, for the caregiver. Yeah, not only that, if, if you can get everybody in the family on the same page, again, we're back to talking siblings and parents, all on the same page, then you don't have fights. Because I can't tell you how many times I've heard siblings fighting over, no, mom said she'd want this, so mom would prefer that. I know what mom wants. you know. And then I've had lawyers tell me that they can't do anything with people because the family's so busy fighting, they have to leave the room. Because they're arguing over what mom or dad should or shouldn't have or want. So if you can do it while everybody's still able to talk, and that's important, doing it before you need it, um, then you can ask, what would you prefer? My parents were sitting next to each other, and I asked them one of the questions in the five wishes, which is, at, towards the end, would you rather be in a hospital or at home or in hospice? And my mother just came right out and said, in a hospital. And my father said, at home. And my mother and father looked at each other like, what? Because <laughs> they each thought the other one wanted the same thing they wanted. So you have to start that conversation so that you can say, look, I have this in the writing. Here's everything we discussed. I'm doing exactly what you want. And then your parents don't think you're trying to take over their lives because it's what they've told you they want. Hmm. So you're giving them respect to honor their wishes. Hmm. Well, I can't tell you just how uh, impressed I am with uh, not only what you have accomplished in terms of, of giving care to your own parents, but uh, then stepping beyond that to uh, want to extend help to others who find themselves in this situation. And uh, I think you've done a really commendable public service with this book, which again is titled I'll Be Right There, A Guidebook for Adults Caring for Their Aging Parents. It's published by Publish Your Purpose Press, the author Fern Pesson. Fern Pesson, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on The Morning Show. Best wishes to you and to your two parents, uh, and thank you again for being part of The Morning Show. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 